0: The Holy Gospel of Our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to, you, Lord to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, "God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers." or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a 10th of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Well, again, good morning. My name is Paul. I'm the senior pastor here, and I am thrilled, especially if you're a visitor, that you've chosen to worship with us today. It's my honor to introduce our guest preacher today. And for those who call our church home, he, he won't be a guest to you. He's more a friend, a brother, a father. And his name is John Mackerel. John Mackerel serves as the, or A, Associate Director of InterVarsity Ministries here in the United States, he went to a small school uh, called Clemson, right? Is that right? And a uh, small school, some of you love the Tigers. I'm still working on my love. But um, he served university right out of the gate from Clemson, um, at Clemson, and then was uh, invited to start a chapter at NC State. He has spent all of his life, all of his adult life, investing in students, investing in the next generation. And uh, this has included content development like Bible studies, uh, leadership development, uh, conference speaking engagements. And uh, it's an honor that he would not only choose to share with us today, but choose to call One Fellowship his home. Uh, I think the best thing he's done is marry Kristen. And uh, they have three beautiful young kids. So let's welcome John Mackerel to the One Fellowship pulpit this morning.
2: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so quick story. Uh, when my wife, Kristen, and I first got married, we were living in Raleigh, North Carolina, where, as Paul said, I was planting college ministry at NC State University. Uh, we lived in this uh, apartment complex on the north side, North Hills in Raleigh. Uh, and we had this neighbor who was uh, a bit of an intense kind of guy. He had this punching bag on his porch uh, that faced the parking lot. And every day he would go out and practice on this thing, and not like lightly tapping it. I mean, he beat this thing like it stole his money. And at the same time, uh, he would play this loud, heavy metal, screamo music. You all know what I'm talking about, you know, where the lyrics are like, you know, it's like I've never seen an exorcism before, but that's kind of how I imagine uh, it would sound. Uh, had tattoos on his arms and neck. He wore all black, had one of those wallet chains. Uh, He drove a souped-up Dodge Charger with a racing stripe and Flowmasters on it. He'd start this thing in the morning. You hear, you know. Uh, Even, you know, he always walked around. He had this kind of intense, stern look on his face. Uh, He had a a mean, resting face. Uh, I'm told that this is a thing. Uh, Even his name was kind of intense. His name was Dane. You know, it's kind of an intense name. Meanwhile, I am this young pastel polo shirt-wearing young campus minister uh, here in Raleigh. And I just assume Dane probably looks at me like, this guy looks like, leave it to Beaver. (laughs) Like, uh, and, um, you know, I I assumed that Dane looked down on me. And if I'm honest, uh, I also looked down on him. And kind of kept my distance from him. Maybe for a safety reason, because I was kind of scared. But, uh, you know, I tell you that story uh, to tell you this. Uh, I'm driving home from campus one day. I pull up to our apartment. Uh, Dane's out there on the porch, popping that bag, rocking that screamo. And uh, I'm walking up the sidewalk. And all of a sudden, the music stops. And I hear, hey, it's uh, it's John, isn't it? To which I look up and said, uh yeah and i'll never forget the question next question he asked me he said do you like cheesecake (laughs) now in all honesty i do not like cheesecake like at all it would not make the top 10 list uh, for me of desserts but i had to see where this was going uh so i just said yeah and he said well uh, i just got done baking some cheesecake And I was just wondering if uh, you and your wife uh, would like some to which, uh, sure. (laughs) I kid you not, Dane brings over this plated, saran-wrapped, amazing-looking cheesecake. I'm like, this Cheesecake Factory, dude? Uh, Apparently, Dane enjoys baking cheesecake. Uh, In fact, he enjoys experimenting with different kinds of cheesecake. He'll crush up candy bars like Snickers or Butterfingers, and then he will bake it in uh, to the cheesecake. And I'm not going to lie, it's really good cheesecake. And I don't like cheesecakes. (laughs) So as I'm sitting there, uh, it also turns out, I'll say that Dane is a super nice guy. Uh, he's kind, he's kind of funny when you get to know him. We ended up becoming great neighbors uh, over the course of our time living there. Uh, But I'll never forget that first night as I'm eating my cheesecake with Snickers in it. uh, And uh, the thought hit me, you know, Dane Dane is actually a really good neighbor. And then the next immediate thought was, no, he's actually kind of a better neighbor, a better neighbor than I was to him. Here I am, this young Christian campus minister. I know God's love. I teach other people about God's love and how to show God's love. Yet who was it that showed love? It was Dane. Dane was the one who took initiative to reach out to me. Dane was the one who showed kindness and hospitality to me. And I just looked down on him. That's a humbling experience. The question uh, I want to ask today is, uh, you know, well, I'll start with, we all know that it's, you know, it's not good to be bad, right? Most people strive to be decent human beings. We all ascribe to some basic level of morality. We want to teach our kids to grow up and be good people. For those of us here in church, we want our kids to know and believe in God and follow his way of life. We know it's not good to be bad. Yet, is there something wrong with being good? Is there a danger to being good? Is there a shadow side to morality? And I would propose that there is. In fact, I would go on as far to say that uh, those of us who are religious, many of us in this room, are actually most susceptible to the dangers of being good. New York Times bestselling author, New York City pastor, Timothy Keller, uh, who passed away uh, earlier this year, wrote this in his book, A Reason for God. He said, religion tends to create a slippery slope in the heart. Each religion informs its followers that they have the truth. This naturally leads them to feel superior to those with differing beliefs. This moves them to separate from those who are less devoted and pure in life Therefore, it is easy for one religious group to stereotype and caricature other ones. Once this situation exists, it can easily spiral down into the marginalization of others or even act of oppression, abuse, and violence against against them. I think we know this to be true. On a personal level, we know that uh, striving to be good, a, a moral person, can lead to the thought that you know, that I am a good person. In fact, I'm kind of a better person than maybe that person or those people. It can lead to things like self-righteousness or prejudice or judgment of others. When you amplify this on a social level, you start to emerge all sorts of divisive human tendencies, things like sexism or racism or nationalism or classism or all the terrible isms of our cultures. And perhaps most dangerous of all is when we systematize or institutionalize these divisive tendencies. And human history, unfortunately, is full of examples of us doing this. Everything from segregation and slavery to ethic, you know, cleansing and genocide. So the real question I wanna pose this morning is how do we protect ourselves from the dangers of being good? How do we protect ourselves from the shadow side of morality? And it's with that that we turn to our parable this morning where Jesus tells a story about two people, a moral, religiously upright Pharisee and an unjust, immoral tax collector. Now some background, Uh, tax collectors. Tax collectors in this culture at this time were typically Jewish people that worked for the Roman government. They were like Roman uh, IRS agents or customs agents. Uh, They were responsible for collecting all the taxes that fueled the Roman government. Tax collectors were notorious for being corrupt. Rather than just charge the standard required tax, they would often overcharge people and then pocket the difference. As a result, they became extremely wealthy at other people's expense. They were essentially like the opposite of Robin Hood. They stole from the poor in order to make themselves rich. As a result, people hated tax collectors, as you would imagine. Uh, we would hate tax collectors if they existed today. If we had a political official that continued to hike taxes and charge us exorbitant taxes only to find out that he was embezzling the funds for personal use, we would not like such an official. We would want to get that official out of office, would we not? But here's the sad truth of back then is that even though people hated tax collectors and everybody knew what they were doing was unjust, they couldn't do anything about it because the tax collectors had the backing of the Roman military. Therefore, they were free to inflict pain and hardship on people and families as they pleased and no one could do anything different about it. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders, uh, unlike the immoral tax collectors, uh, they devoted their lives to uh, learning and following and upholding God's laws. They had the entire Old Testament memorized, more than 500,000 words committed to memory. They knew and followed the 613 Old Testament commands. And in fact, they were so zealous for God's law that they... Uh, they. Uh, usually stacked on even more rules and traditions because they wanted to stay as far away from breaking God's law as possible. The Pharisees, unlike the tax collectors, were the uh, moral model of society. They were the people that you wanted your kids to grow up and be. They were the people that you strove to be. And it was with these two people in mind that Jesus tells this story. Uh, And these two people, by the way, would be in the audience listening to Jesus as he tells this parable. And it starts uh, with Luke clarifying the target audience as uh, some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this unjust tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but instead beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now take note that both the tax collector and the Pharisee are in the temple praying to God. The difference is, is that they offer two very different prayers and postures. The Pharisee stands by himself. Uh, He stands away from people like the tax collector. Why? Bad company corrupts good character, right? He tries to avoid these kind of people. And he thanks God that he's on the good side. He thanks God that that I'm not like this unjust tax collector. I'm not out hurting people and doing wrong. Uh, He thanks God that he's a moral, religious, and generous person. Meanwhile, the tax collector can't even come close to the temple He just stands at a distance. He lowers his head and he just beats his chest and says a very simple prayer of confession, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, if you were in the audience listening to Jesus tell this parable, at this moment and listening to him, you would say, this all makes sense. I've seen this before. I know Pharisees, I know tax collectors. Uh, And they would have thought, you know what, God uh, listens to and affirms the prayer of that Pharisee. And they would also think of the tax collector, you know what, good luck. We'll see. You know, we'll see if God actually gives you mercy. You know, but in fact, maybe deep down, I kind of hope that he doesn't. I kind of hope that you get what you deserve because of what you've done. And yet, Jesus to the surprise of everyone, and the shock of everyone in the audience, says that God does the exact opposite. That God, when he hears the prayer of this sinning, cheating, stealing tax collector, says that, you know what? He went home justified before God, while the morally upright religious Pharisee did not. How is that possible? He says he went home justified before God. Justified is, it's a legal term. You can imagine a courtroom setting. you got a judge and a defendant. If a judge justifies the defendant, what he's essentially doing is rendering a verdict, saying that this person is righteous. I am declaring them right. They are not guilty, and they are in good standing. Theologically, it means that someone is in good standing or right relationship with God. And Jesus is saying that when God listens to the prayer of this tax collector, he says, you know what? Me and him are actually good. We're on good terms. While he does not say that for the Pharisee, how is that possible? And it's here that we have to go back to the beginning as Luke clarifies the target audience for Jesus's parable. He says to some who were uh, confident in their own righteousness. Note that Jesus does not question the content of the Pharisee's prayer. He does not question uh, his moral or religious or generous behavior. What he does is question the source of it. And if we truly wanna understand what Jesus is getting at, then we have to begin to ask different types of questions. We don't uh, need to just ask what the Pharisees were doing, but why they were doing it. Not just to ask what about their external behavior and actions, but why, the motives. Why were they uh, so good? Why were they so religious? Why were they so devout? And it's here that you learn uh, from Jesus that, The Pharisees, although they looked immaculate from the outside and moral and good and religious, they were anything but that on the inside. Listen to some of these uh, critiques that Jesus has of the Pharisees in Matthew. He says, You Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, you are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. He goes on to say, you know what? Everything they do is just for show. They love to wear extra wide prayer boxes with scriptures on it. They... love to wear robes with extra long tassels. They love to sit at the head tables of banquets. They love the seats of honor Uh, in synagogue. They love to receive respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And he later goes on to say, you know what? Uh, These people, they honor me. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts, their motives, their desires, yeah, those are far from me. Those are far from me. And if we, uh, you know, I think we have to understand that what Jesus is essentially saying is that underneath the Pharisees' good behavior, underneath their religious devotion, underneath their generous benevolence of others was not motivated by a heart or a love for God and people, but for themselves. In other words, they didn't just want God, they didn't love God, they loved what they could get from their devotion to God. The respect, the significance, the honor, the public notoriety that comes with it. And if we're honest, we can be guilty of the exact same thing. We really need to ask ourselves, uh, not just what, but why not just what would the Lord have me do or what is a good life that I should be living? What would he have me do? But why do I want to do it to begin with? Why am I doing all this? We need to ask ourselves really honest, searching questions like, why are we sitting here in church today? Why do we serve? Why do we give money? Why do we strive to be good people? Is it because those are activities that, are, that God gives us, gifts that God gives us for the mutual benefit of ourselves and others? Do we strive to be good because that's what we believe will lead to a good life and the best life that God wants for us? Or is it somehow deep down convoluted where we do these activities because they're transactional? Because I just give God a little bit of what he wants, so that I somehow obligate him to give me a little bit of what I want. We have to search ourselves and ask ourselves, pay attention. Another way to do this is pay attention. What happens when you don't get what you want? What happens when your prayers aren't answered? What happens when you feel like you don't get what you deserve? What happens when someone seemingly less moral, less religious, someone that you might not even like, what happens when they get what you want? How do you feel about that? What's the response within you? Is it, you know what, that's God's generosity to them? Or does it produce a sense of anger an injustice inside of you? Does it produce what the older brother and the prodigal sons does to say that he separates himself from the father and he says, you know what? You never gave me anything. I've been serving you my whole life and you never even gave me a fattened calf. To which the father's like, you've always been with me. You always know me. How do you respond when you don't get what you deserve or what you don't get what you want? At the end of the day, what God wants is not just our obedience. God wants our hearts. He wants our affections, our motives, our desires. He wants us to want him. He tells the Old Testament prophet Samuel, he says, listen, uh, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearance. But the Lord, no, the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, when God looks at us, he does not just see our good behavior. He does not just see our religious activity. No, what God is really looking at when we do all these things is why are we doing it? He looks at our motives. He looks at our desires. He looks at our affections. Because at the end of the day, that's what God wants. He wants this relationship. He wants our hearts. Jesus says that the ultimate commandment, the greatest commandment is not to serve God or give to God or to even obey God. No, Jesus says that the greatest commandment of all is to love God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. Because Jesus knows that if you love someone that much, your behavior and your lifestyle will follow but it, love will not necessarily follow your behavior. God wants you, he wants your heart. And that's exactly what the tax collector gives him. As he sits in the temple with his head down, beating his chest, he recognizes that he hasn't just done something wrong, but that he's wronged someone, namely God and other people. And it breaks his heart. And he just pours out his heart to God with a simple prayer saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognizes that what he's done is unjust. It's wrong. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't blame shift it. Uh, He just calls it for what it is. And he sits and rests in God's mercy. And to the shock of everyone listening, Jesus says that God gives it to him that he gives him his mercy. What is the point of Jesus's parable? Why does he tell this parable to this crowd? If I had to state it plainly in my own words, I would say it's this. If you want to be good with God, make a confession, not a case. If you want to be in good relationship with God, in good standing with God, if you want a healthy, maturing relationship with God, lead with confession. Make a confession, not a case. Do not come to God making a case for why he should love you or why he should accept you or why he should give you what you think you deserve. Do not come with a list of evidence of all your good deeds and all your religious activities and how much you've done for him because if you do, the evidence will speak against you. It will show you where your heart truly is. No, come to him with a simple confession. I deserve nothing, I bring nothing and I simply rest in your mercy. And don't just confess the things that we've done wrong or the good things that we've left undone but confess the often, and if we're honest, misdirected and selfish reasons why we do things right. Don't just confess your wrongdoing. Confess the misdirected motives behind the reasons why we do anything right. And Jesus says, if you do that, mercy, grace, every single time. If these people listening to this had reason uh, to believe and trust in God's mercy, we have even more. Because uh, the question still stands for the people listening, and the question still stands, how does, how does a guilty person be declared not guilty by God? Wouldn't that make God unjust? You know, this tax collector had done wrong things. He had wronged people. No, when you're guilty, you should pay. That's justice. He needs to pay. Someone needs to pay. Who pays? And the answer is, it wasn't him. It was Jesus. Because the ultimate story, the tax collector doesn't pay. He doesn't earn God's mercy through his beating himself up or his self-hatred or self-pity. God doesn't want that. No, he earns it through Jesus. Jesus is the one who earns it on his behalf. And the ultimate story, it's not a tax collector beating himself up. It's Jesus being beaten on our behalf. And the ultimate story, it's not a tax collector who was distancing himself from God. It was Jesus who was distanced from the Father as he bore our sin on the cross. It wasn't through the tax collector bowing his head and refusing to look up into heaven. It was because Jesus descended from heaven and bowed his head in humble submission to death on a cross, all so that we could experience God's love and his grace and mercy. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's the answer. How do we protect ourselves from the dangers of being good? It's not through trying harder to be good. It's through God's grace. To quote Tim Keller again, he says that uh, Christianity unlike any other philosophy or religion in the world, has within itself the remarkable power to explain and expunge the divisive tendencies within the human heart. Most religions and philosophies of life assume that one's spiritual status depends on your religious attainments. Most people in our culture believe that if there is a God, we relate to him and go to heaven through leading a good life. Christianity teaches the very opposite. In the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so that we can merit salvation. Rather, he comes to forgive and save us through his life and death in our place. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and acknowledge our need for a savior. That's it. It is through God's grace That's what makes Christianity utterly unique among world religions and other philosophies of thought because you don't get to God by being good. No, God gets to us by being the good person that we never could be so that we could live the good life we never could have without him. And it's that, it's God's grace that enables us and motivates us and compels us to live good and righteous and generous and kind lives without succumbing to any of the dangers of that goodness because it doesn't depend on us, it depends on him. It's not about what we do, it's about what he's already done. I'll leave you with this. I once heard a pastor say that self-righteousness is what happens when forgiven people forget. So one fellowship, let us never forget. Let us never forget that we have been forgiven. Let us never forget what it costs Jesus for us to be saved and to be good with God. Let us never forget it is not by our morally exalted cases, but by our humble confessions that God loves us and shows us mercy and grace every time. May it be so with us and ours.